everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Today, in our 57th session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we finish up Chapter 2 of The Return of the King and do our level best to cover Chapter 3, The Muster of Rohan. Before we get to that, though, because goodness knows, having innumerable slides and a lot of material to cover just isn't enough of a challenge here on There and Back Again, there are two other quick issues which I would like to address. Two outstanding topics of conversation, one of which I'm going to dispense with rather quickly with the world's largest and most ornately Germanic pen. We're just going to address something very briefly and then probably circle back around to it for future discussions, possibly after we're done with the end of The Return of the King, in fact. And then something that is going to frame our discussion of this week's reading and kind of inform our understanding of The Lord of the Rings as a whole, certainly as a cultural artifact, if less so as a story. The first of those two subjects is the influence of Wagner, the influence of The Ring, for example, the influence of Teutonic and Germanic myth upon Tolkien in general. I am, I should say, a little underschooled in my Wagner. I do know that Professor Tolkien, which this is a detail that might surprise many of you, I'm sure, Professor Tolkien did not care for Wagner. Apparently, by the time he arrived at university, University, he was already somewhat scathing and somewhat caustic in his response to Wagner and the evolution of Germanic myth that is embodied within Wagner's work. Certainly later in his life, of course, he would also oppose Wagner quite strenuously as being co-opted or being representative of uh, Nazism and the, uh, the conflict that cast such a profound shadow over Tolkien's life uh, in the middle of the 20th century, over, of course, every life in the middle of the 20th century, but Tolkien's in particular. So he was not a big fan of Wagner. He was also very strenuously objective to, or very strenuously objected to uh, comparisons drawn between The Lord of the Rings and the work of Wagner. That may be in response to some assertions that were made by the Swedish translator of The Lord of the Rings, but nonetheless, Tolkien was very stark that there was no connection between The Lord of the Rings and Wagner. That is not to say, of course, that they weren't influenced by similar works. They absolutely were. Tolkien is referencing many of the same foundational myths and stories that Wagner references in his work, but doing so in a very different and, and differently inflected way. I am more inclined to read Wagner gently, I think, in the light of Tolkien's work than many advocates of, of Professor Tolkien's perspective on this matter. And I do think that it would be fascinating to take a look at Wagner specifically in one of the inevitable follow-up lectures that we will do here on There and Back Again. It would be really interesting, actually, to, to take some individual lectures, possibly after we're done with the books, before we transition into the movies, just to create a little, a little space there in our schedule. Maybe take a look at the prose edda, maybe take a look at some uh, Anglo-Saxon poetry. I've been thinking and reading a lot about Anglo-Saxon poetry because of one of the poems that we're going to cover in this week's reading. I would love to delve more deeply into that. I think that would be a really fascinating thing. So with all of that said, let's put a pin there and we'll circle back around to it in a couple of months' time, I think. The second big issue that we must discuss... Well, I got an email from a wonderful listener, Lisa, who writes, I'm eager for your discussion of Eowyn in this week's There and Back Again because I don't know what to think about Tolkien's treatment of women. And this is a problem that we've kind of alighted upon before, the perception of Tolkien as being regressively or insufficiently feminist in his writing, that, that his female characters are underdeveloped or are overdeveloped. We'll get to that in just a moment. But Lisa's actual core point regards the use of the word man and men as being indicative of the human race in Middle-earth. And this is really, really fascinating. And I, I did some research and some looking around here. Interestingly, I'll throw this out as a little trivia reference for you here. This is a deep-cut trivia reference for you, okay? Tolkien uses the word human 
once, once in The Lord of the Rings. He does not use it in The Hobbit at all, and it appears in The Silmarillion only as a part of frame text. It doesn't appear in the in the, the fictional prose of The Silmarillion at all. It only appears in footnotes and the introductory letter in the second edition. But he does use the word human once in The Lord of the Rings. Can anyone call out where he uses the word human? We'll come back around to that in just a moment. In Old English, the word man was not specifically gendered. It was used in the first, second, and third person perspectives in singular forms and in plural forms. It can mean I, him, her, them, y'all. It can mean a, a multitude of things, albeit, you know, somewhat informally. Man did not mean adult male human. That is to say that it was not gendered in English until the 13th century. Human, on the other hand, meaning an individual person rather than the, the race of humanity, entered English in the 16th century around 1530. That is somewhat later than Professor Tolkien's linguistic tastes tend to run, and the word human is all the more problematic for Professor Tolkien because it comes from Latin to English through the French, and Tolkien did not love the French language and did not like incorporating elements of the French language in his own vocabulary and lexicon. That doesn't mean, of course, that the modern connotative sense of the word man or men is irrelevant. And let us not pretend for a moment that the gendered use of the word man is insignificant in The Lord of the Rings, because, hey, Eowyn is going to have a thing or two to say about that in the very near future. At the fulfillment of a great prophecy, Eowyn is going to lean very heavily on the gendered use of the word man. So that is clearly in Tolkien's mind, but there is, I think a strong mythic reason why the professor chose to use the race of men rather than the race of humans within his secondary creation, within the fictional frame of Middle-earth. And it is simply that it is more mythic, that it is older, that it is possessed of a much greater antiquity than the somewhat modern and... I'm sure to Tolkien's ear, pedantic sounding human. I think that is his preference, is to turn always toward the Old English, to turn always toward the Anglo-Saxon, to turn always toward that greater mythic register rather than a more modern register. And we must remember, of course, that the 16th century, the early 16th century is by Tolkien's standards, is by the standards of the development of English, modern. That is pretty much the breaking point there. 1500 there or thereabouts is pretty much the breaking point from medieval English into modern English. And that is always something that is of, of great note and concern to Professor Tolkien in the construction of his works. So the fact that he uses the word human in various letters, I would say, suggests that he wasn't opposed to the use of the word at all, that it is the preservation of the mythic frame that works for him. That does not mean that we must be casual. I think that or, or that we can be casual in our modern use of it, because in the modern world, it is pretty resolutely gendered, actually. It's, it's, you can make the appeal to Old English if you are so inclined, but let's be honest, the connotative quality of the race of man is a masculine connotative quality. So we want to be more inclusive and more thoughtful and more progressive in our approach to this text in the modern frame than, than we would if we were you know, more concerned with, with linguistic matters than we are with narrative and cultural and social matters. And the response, of course, of many readers all over the world. This also touches on a related subject and the relationship that Tolkien had with his female characters. This is going to be of vital importance as we read about Eowyn in this week's reading. It has been noted before that Tolkien is a little light on female characters. Less than 20% of the named characters in The Lord of the Rings are female, which is, to say the least, demographically unlikely. If we were getting a broadly representative population of characters within the pages of the book, then we would expect that number to be 
higher, to be roughly equal, in fact, to the number of named male characters in the books. There are two criticisms of Tolkien's women, which I want to bear in mind as we move into the reading and into the chapters beyond. I think that both are insufficient. I think that both of these critical responses are insufficient and are oftentimes caused by a insufficiently careful reading of the core text. The first criticism of Tolkien's female characters is simply that there are no female characters of note in Tolkien's world, or too few at least. That may well be the case. As I say, it's demographically unlikely that 20% of the people living in Middle-earth are women or are self-identified as female. But since we're doing trivia today, actually, let me... Uh, let me see if I can circle back around. Did anyone get the uh, get the human reference here? I'm not at all sure. It is a deep cut reference. I had to go looking for it. Ah, Glowinson has it. The Kirith Ungle statues. Absolutely right. Excellent. Yes, the uh, the excerpt. In fact, I think I I think I pulled this. Yes, this is from the stairs of Kirith Ungle as uh, Frodo, Sam, and uh, and Gollum are approaching Kirith Ungle itself. The quote is: "From mead to mead, the bridge sprang. Figures stood there at its head, carven in uh, carven with cunning in forms human and bestial, but all corrupt and loathsome." That is the only time that the word human appears in the Lord of the Rings. I find that completely fascinating. And since we're doing trivia, can you name the only named female character who appears in the Hobbit? This is a much easier question. Question, of course, but there is one named female character who appears in The Hobbit. Who is she? So we can't ignore the fact that many of the most powerful and important and thematically resonant characters in Tolkien's Legendarium are women or identify as female. We've got Varda, you know, Elbereth Gilthoniel, Gilthoniel herself. We've got Yavanna, we've got Luthien, we've got Nimrodel, we've got Arwen, we've got Goldberry, we've got Galadriel, we've got Shelob, and of course her mother Ungoliant, which are very specific and interesting and fascinating examples, kind of borderline examples, but curious examples nonetheless. And of course, Eowyn, daughter of Eomund and Theodwin, currently ruling, as of this moment in the narrative, as the de facto steward of her people in Rohan. So I don't think it's I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's careful. I don't think it's intellectually honest to dismiss Tolkien's work as being bereft of either a sufficient number of named female characters. There is a borderline argument there, certainly. And it's certainly not the case that, that Tolkien's work is bereft of important or significant female characters. There are many, many female characters in the works of Tolkien who are numbered among the very most important characters in all of his legendarium. The other criticism of Tolkien's female characters comes from exactly the opposite direction. All of Tolkien's female characters, so the assertion goes, are pure and perfect and pedestaled, that none of them get real complexity or character development. All of the named women that I just listed are either gooder than good or badder than bad, and there's no one in between. I don't think that's true either. I don't think that a careful read of the text supports that assertion one whit. I think that we've spent a lot of time discussing Galadriel, right? The, the awesome majesty and power of Galadriel, one of the most important characters in all of Middle-earth, one of the most important female characters in Tolkien's entire body of work, and yet she is enormously complicated. She is virtuous. She passes her test. She is graceful and, and dignified. She is a perfect representation, well, an almost perfect representation of, of elfdom in Middle-earth, right? Galadriel is a knockout character, and yet she's very complex. She has problems with the preservation of Lothlorien. She has problems with the power of the ring. She has problems with her place in the world in the way that all of the elves have problems with their place in the world, I suppose. Galadriel is enormously complicated. Eowyn, similarly, is going to be challenged by expectation and by duty in this week's reading, and it's not 
uh, not only in a way that targets her gender. Plus, she has given in this week's re reading a pretty compelling rallying cry against sexism. That is acknowledged outright in the text of this chapter. We get Lobelia Sackville-Baggins is a genuinely awful person, right? But she's an awful person by the standards of hobbits, which means that she's also still pretty good. Like, Lobelia Sackville-Baggins would not rank in, in your list of worst and most heinous characters in all of Middle-earth. Gollum's grandmother, even, seems to have been the patriarch of her community there on the banks of the Anduin, uh, just after uh, Deagle finds the ring and, and passes it on somewhat involuntarily to Smeagol. All of this is to say that when we're talking about gender and identity and culture within the pages of The Lord of the Rings and within the frame of The Lord of the Rings as a cultural artifact, it does us little good, I think, to distill the arguments into simple assertive statements. As is so often the case, Professor Tolkien writes with more care and more thought and more acuity and more subtlety than trivial critics of his work recognize. And I think that it is entirely appropriate as we move through this week's reading and as we move through the rest of The Return of the King, I mean, we're going to circle back around to this in the middle of the last book of, of The Lord of the Rings too. It is entirely appropriate. It is, in fact, incumbent upon us to have these conversations about gender and identity and representation within the frame of The Lord of the Rings, but we must preserve a space for complexity there. It is completely okay to say that we find particular elements problematic or that we find particular elements insufficient or that we find particular elements to be, in fact, resonant and fantastic and supportable with the full weight of our moral right. You know, this is this is a very complicated space and I want to have those conversations and we must therefore be critical of simplistic and reductive counter-arguments, particularly when those counter-arguments or those criticisms can be trivially refuted by reading the book. This does get a little more complicated when we talk about the movies, but I'm trying not to talk about the movies this week. So we'll see what we can do to uh, to preserve our, our textual purity and our textual innocence here as we move forward. And uh, let me see, do we have some questions here? Um... Belladonna, yes, Belladonna Took is the only named character, the only female named character who appears in The Hobbit. We also get um, the wife of Girion of Dale appears in that book. She is not named within the frame of that book. And the mother of Philly and Kili is referenced in that book, but she too is not named in that book. We have to wait for the appendices of The Lord of the Rings before we get a name for the mother of Philly and Kili. One Dees by name, in fact. So yes, the fabulous or famous Belladonna Took is the only named female character in the pages of The Hobbit. Luckily, The Lord of the Rings does a little bit better. It's, it's at least an improvement. All right, let's get into our discussion then of chapter two, The Passing of the Grey Company. We had to cut last week's session short before we got to Aragorn and Eowyn, so I am very pleased to say that is where we begin this week's reading. The Lady Eowyn greeted them, and was glad of their coming, for no mightier man had she seen than the Dúnedain and the fair sons of Elrond, but on Aragorn most of all her eyes rested. And when they sat at supper with her they talked together, and she heard of all that had passed since Theoden rode away, concerning which only hasty tidings had yet reached her. And when she heard of the battle in Helm's Deep and the great slaughter of their foes and of the charge of Theoden and his knights, then her eyes shone. But at last she said, Lords, you are weary and shall go now to your beds with such ease as can be contrived in haste, but tomorrow fairer housing shall be found for you. But Aragorn said, Nay, lady, be not troubled for us. If we may lie here tonight and break our fast tomorrow, it will be enough, for I ride on an errand most urgent, and with the first light of morning we must go. She smiled on him and said, Then it was kindly done, Lord, to ride so many miles out of your way to bring tidings to Eowyn and to speak with her in her exile. Indeed, no man would count such a journey wasted, said Aragorn, and yet, lady, I could not have come hither if it were not that the road which I must take leads me to Dunharrow. 
And she answered as one who likes not what is said, Then, Lord, you are astray, for out of Haredale no road runs east or south, and you had best return as you came. Nay, lady, said he, I am not astray, for I walked in this land ere you were born to grace it. There is a road out of this valley, and that road I shall take. Tomorrow I shall ride by the paths of the dead. Then she stared at him as one that is stricken, and her face blanched, and for long she spoke no more while all sat silent. But Aragorn, she said at last, is it then your errand to seek death? For that is all that you will find on that road. They do not suffer the living to pass. They may suffer me to pass, said Aragorn, but at the least I will adventure it. No other road will serve. But this is madness, she said, for here are men of renown and prowess whom you should not take into the shadows but should lead to war where men are needed. I beg you to remain and ride with my brother, for then all our hearts will be gladdened and our hope will be the brighter. It is not madness, lady, he answered, for I go on a path appointed, but those who follow me do so of their free will. If they should wish now to remain and ride with the Rohirrim, they may do so, but I shall take the paths of the dead, alone, if needs be. Then they said no more, and they ate in silence, but her eyes were ever upon Aragorn, and the others saw that she was in great torment of mind. At length they arose and took their leave of the lady, and thanked her for her care, and went to their rest. I've said over the course of the last few weeks several times that the return of the king is the part of the Lord of the Rings which most excessively and successfully modulates its own tone. That is to say that the register of the prose in The Return of the King, particularly in Book 5 of The Return of the King, is the highest, is the most developed, is the most complex and ambitious that we will see anywhere in The Lord of the Rings. And outside of the mythic quasi-biblical language that we find in the Silmarillion, the most successful form of this type of prose, this, this type of register and tone that we will find anywhere in Tolkien's Legendarium for my money. This knocks off my socks. This is so powerful. It is so beautifully composed. Look at how we come into this. The Lady Eowyn greeted them and was glad of their coming, for no mightier man had she seen than the Dunedain and the fair sons of Elrond. But on Aragorn, most of all, her eyes rested. We're already in that slightly higher register, but it gets higher still when they begin to talk. So her eyes are shining at the news from Helm's Deep and the, the charge of Theoden and his knights, this, this great glory, this, this glory of valor and virtue that has come back to her now, reflected in the person of Aragorn as he tells her this story. But at last she said, Lords, you are weary and shall now go to your beds with such ease as can be contrived in haste. She is playing the host here. I am so glad to have you here. This is great. You're clearly going to ride to war with the Rohirrim. This is fantastic. Hey, Cool. Good news. And Aragorn says, no, actually, um, don't worry about it. We're just going to stay here tonight. We're going to break our fast in the morning, and then we absolutely have to go. And look at this turn. She smiled on him and said that it was kindly done, Lord, to ride so many miles out of your way to bring tidings to Eowyn and to speak with her in her exile, referring to herself in the third person, right? We've already elevated her her entitling of Aragorn to Lord, right? She, she's already in that register, but now she goes still higher. She smiles on him, this, this courtly, queenly smile. She smiles on him and said that it was kindly done, Lord, to ride so many miles out of your way to bring tidings to Eowyn and to speak with her in her exile. Here she is referring to herself in the third person, recognizing, so she believes, that Aragorn has done this act of great service to her. That, oh, you have to leave again immediately? Well, God, that means that you came here just to see me, just to tell me what was going on and just to, you know, also spend some time with me. Okay, that's pretty great. So she smiles and she is, is radiant in this moment, radiant in terms of, of the light from her, of course, but also in terms of the, the pouring out of a, a queenly compassion and a, a queenly courtly gentility here. And then Aragorn responds, indeed, no man would count such a journey wasted. Well, 
Okay, I mean, that would be a good thing to do. No man would count such a journey wasted, and yet I could not have come hither if it was not if it were not that the road which I must take leads me to Dunharrow. Um I it wouldn't have been wasted if I had come, but unfortunately I don't have the freedom to make that choice. AON, I had to come here because the road that I'm taking actually carried me here anyway. So this is this is good. This is great. I'm glad that I had the opportunity to to tell you the news of the success of the men of the Rohirrim out, out on the fields of Isengard and, and at Helm's Deep, but that's not actually the reason that I came. And she answered as one that likes not what is said. This is the most elevated language. And she answered as one that likes not what is said. You'll note there that conjunction right at the beginning that, as we've observed before, when we introduce new sentences, new new paragraphs, new lines of thought with this sense of continuation. And so thus, you know, we get this, this biblical language that assures us that we are part of an ongoing story. It elevates the tone still further. And she answered as one that likes not what is said. Then, Lord, you are astray for out of Haradale. No road runs east or south and you had best return as you came. Um, okay. She likes not what is said. She likes not the fact that Aragorn is on a mission right now and visiting with her is at best a fringe benefit, right? This is not his purpose. He did not come here to see her. He did not even come here to carry her tidings of the, the victory of the man of Rohan. He's actually still in the field. He's still pursuing his mission. And she says, well, okay, there is no other road coming out of here. Nay, lady, said he, I am not a stray, for I walked in this land or you were born to grace it. Now, um, Cute, Aon, but uh, actually, I've been around a little bit, and I know the paths. I know exactly what I intend to do. Ere you were born to grace it, looking still at that courtly language, right? This is Aragorn in full-on king mode. Now that he has revealed himself to Sauron, he has claimed his his name, his role, his bloodline, his inheritance in an even more developed way than he had previously. The king has not yet returned. But he is still the king. He is now Aragorn, son of Arathorn, in a way that he was not previously. This is a, a new kind of Aragorn, a new kind of register that we get. Then she stared at him as one that is stricken, and her face blanched, and for long she spoke no more while all sat silent. But Aragorn, she said at last, is it then your errand to seek death? And this is breathtaking. Because not only have we sustained this incredibly elevated and operatic level of language throughout this entire exchange, right? And, and we do so even there. Then she stared at him as one that is stricken. Not she was stricken, not her face paled. But she stared at him as one that is stricken. We're still in that elevated mode there, right? Um, for long she spoke no more while all sat silent. And then we come crashing down into the intimate. We are no longer in the courtly. We are suddenly, rudely, roughly in the intimate mode of address. But Aragorn, she said at last, is it then your errand to seek death? This is the moment of complete intimate vulnerability and, and complete intimate connection between Aragorn and Eowyn. All pretense and facade and, and courtly chivalry is now dispensed with. Oh, hell, are you sure? Aragorn, she calls him by his name. When moments ago she was referring to herself in the third person, right? Now she is calling Aragorn directly by his name. But Aragorn, is it then your errand to seek death? They do not suffer the living to pass, she says, of the paths of the dead. They may suffer me to pass, but at least I will adventure it. Aragorn using the somewhat archaic uh, verb form of the word adventure, which I am enormously fond of. Actually, it's a very good, it's a very good form of that word, and I would like to start using that more in everyday conversation. No other road will serve. But this is madness, for here are men of renown and prowess whom you would not, whom you should not take into the shadows, but should lead to war where men are needed. I beg you to remain and ride with my brother, for then all our hearts will be gladdened and our hope will be brighter. She's making the argument. You have great men. Look how we introduce them. For no mightier man had you seen than the Dunedain and the fair sons of Elrond, right? These men are 
fantastic man. You, Aragorn, are a fantastic man. You should be riding with Eomer to war. You should be doing the thing that that is the, the song of your blood. You should be following the path of your destiny, not into the paths of the dead, not into shadow, but out into the world. You should be accomplishing great things and accomplishing them alongside the men of the Rehirim, and our hearts will be gladdened and our hopes brightened. But Aragorn says, no, I'm not making anyone come with me. If any man of the Dunedain wants to stand with the Rehirim, if Legolas and Gimli want to stand with the Rehirim, fine. I will go to the paths of the dead by myself. I am not making this decision for anyone. This is my cause. This is my mission now. Let me catch up with the chat here. Um, yes, Aragorn is older than you, says Angela. Not truly an issue, but we keep forgetting that. Uh, yeah, he's been around for a while. Let's not forget that Aragorn is 88 at this point. I guess I, we don't exactly know when his birthday is in the frame of the Lord of the Rings, I suppose. So he's either 87 or 88 by this point, I guess. Um, yes, yes, good. Yes, uh, Jeff Adolfunk saying uh, Aragorn is too old for her. Yeah, and Jackie pointing out she's so informal with Aragorn. Yes, that 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 sudden descent from from that elevated language into something much more personal, much more. Yes, as Gretchen says, this is a this is beautifully put. Gretchen, Eowyn is speaking in a regal register, the royal we kind of speech. You can already see that her stature has evolved in their time apart. It absolutely has. She is, well, and this is very very important. She is in effect, serving as the steward of Rohan at this point. While King Theoden is in the field and commanding the, the martial might of Rohan, Eowyn is the one that is running things. She is, she is not just administrating here in her exile. She is serving as a symbol of all that is to be preserved and, and actually embodying the power of the king. There is a strong argument, I think, that Eowyn is to Denethor as Theoden is to Aragorn, right? That, that she is embodying the king's power by kind of this this transitive process, I suppose, that she is acting as steward, that she is now faithfully serving her, her people. Let's move on to the second part of their discussion here. This is as they're discussing whether or not Eowyn should be allowed to ride to war or allowed to, I suppose, um... Aragorn here isn't speaking in, in the mark of Theoden here, so uh, Aragorn is literally speaking in the mark of Theoden. There we go, right? The Ritter mark. But he's not he's not speaking with the authority of Theoden, but Eowyn is still pushing back against that specific injunction. That's why I'm talking about permission. It's not Aragorn's permission as, you know, representative man here. It is Theoden's permission as her king. Your duty is with your people, he answered. Too often have I heard of duty, she cried. But am I not of the house of Aeorl, a shield maiden and not a dry nurse? I have waited on faltering feet long enough since they falter no longer, it seems. May I not now spend my life as I will? Few may do that with honor, he answered. But as for you, lady, did you not accept the charge to govern the people until their lord's return? If you had not been chosen, then some marshal or captain would have been set in the same place, and he could not ride away from his charge, were he weary of it or no. Shall I always be chosen? She said bitterly. Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart, to mind the house while they win renown and find food and beds when they return? A time may come soon, said he, when none will return. Then there will be need of valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes, yet the deeds will not be less valiant because they are unpraised. And she answered, All your words are but to say you are a woman and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honor, you, you have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. But I am of the house of Aeorl and not a serving woman. I can ride and wield blade, and I do not fear either pain or death. What do you fear, lady? he asked. A cage, she said. To stay behind bars until use and old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. And yet you counseled me not to adventure on the road I have chosen, because it is perilous. 
So may one counsel another, she said, yet I do not bid you flee from peril, but to ride to battle where your sword may win renown and victory. I would not see a thing that is high and excellent cast away needlessly. Nor would I, he said. Therefore I say to you, lady, stay, for you have no errand in the south. Neither of those others who go with thee. They go only because they would not be parted from thee, because they love thee. Then she turned and vanished into the night. This is incredibly complicated. This is incredibly rich. There is so much here to parse and to discuss, and we must take pains to study the text here and not to jump to any veiled conclusion that may be in part suggested by the text, but not fully realized by the text. Your duty, says Aragorn, is to your people. And let's be clear, he is absolutely right. Not because she is a woman, but as a, a person of, of Rohan, that is her duty. Too often have I heard of duty, she cries. But am I not of the house of Aeorla, a shield maiden and not a dry nurse? I have waited on faltering feet long enough since they falter no longer, it seems. May I not now spend my life as I will? Well, few may do that with honor, he responds. There are very few people who get to decide what it is that they're going to do with their life and still preserve honor. Life, the service of... of, of your, your years, the, the thing that you seek to do with your life rests upon your duty. It rests upon honor. Therefore, we are all obliged by honor to do what we are commanded to do, either by immediate authority, like your king, or a more general sense of authority, like that of, you know, fate, destiny, Eruviluvatar, however we want to kind of bracket that at this point in Aragorn's experience. But for you, but as for you, lady, so he's switching from the, the general here to the specific. Well, okay, very few people, by the way, get to lead the life that they want and maintain their honor, right? Or, or even better, you know, accumulate greater honor in the course of their lives. That's the general counterpoint that he's making here. The specific counterpoint? But as for you, lady, did you not accept the charge to govern the people until their lord's return? If you had not been chosen, then some marshal or captain would have been set in the same place, and he could not ride away from his charge whether he we were he weary of it or no. Sometimes this passage is misread. Sometimes this passage is presented as a kind of patriarchal beat here from Aragorn, right? That he is saying, well, look, you agreed to take care of you know, these folk. You agreed to take care of Edoras and all of these people who are now in exile from Edoras. This was your charge. This was the charge that was laid upon you. And if you hadn't taken it up, then some some captain, some marshal would have had to do it instead. Come on, Eowyn, like, do your bit. This is, this is a woman's task. And if you don't do it, then a man has to do it instead. And what a waste of a man. I want to be incredibly emphatic about this. I want to be as, as punctuative as I can possibly be about this. That is clearly not what Aragorn is saying. What he is saying is that any person who had taken this task upon themselves, if you had not been chosen, then some marshal or captain would have been set in the same place, and he could not ride away from his charge were he weary of it or no. Anyone set in this task would be charged with the completion of this task, would not be able to abandon it. And you'll note here that even as he's talking about this task that has been set before Eowyn, this thing for which she has been chosen, he's equating her with great marshals and captains of the Riddermark, right? He's saying, no, this is a role that could be served by a man. But if a man were to do this, then he also couldn't abandon his post any more than you can. Shall I always be chosen, she says bitterly. Eowyn completely accepts that argument, it would seem, right? She's not mad at this point. Well, why do I have to do this thing? No, she has been chosen. She has undertaken this task at the command of her king. Shall I always be chosen, she said bitterly. Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart to mind the house while they win renown and find food and beds when they return? What is motivating Eowyn here? 
What is it that Eowyn wants? We see here at the end of this reading, uh, What do you fear, lady? He asked. A cage, she said. To stay behind bars until use and old age accept them and all chance of doing great deeds has gone beyond recall or desire. She wants renown. She wants to accomplish great things. She wants to be heroic in the service of her country. This is a warrior's spirit. And that should be applauded. What Aragorn is arguing here, what this entire passage is arguing, I would say, is not that Eowyn is different because she is a woman. It's not that she doesn't get great deeds because she's a woman. It's that these deeds are great too, that it is not the role appointed for every person to be on the battlefield, that it is not it is not for each and every individual to seek the, the front line of glory. That is what she wants, but this is just as worthy, just as proud. She does not accept that. And we get here a powerful counter-argument from the narrative voice, I guess, from Professor Tolkien himself here intruding. A time may come, he, uh, Aragorn says, when none will return. Then there will be need of valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes. Yet, and this is crucial, the deeds will not be less valiant because they are unpraised. Your valor, Eowyn, is actually beyond doubt. No one is impugning your valor or your courage or your skill with the blade, even. You are a skilled warrior woman. You are a shield maiden. You are of the house of Eorl. No, no dry nurse you. You are capable of great things, but the great things that you will do may not attract renown. But renown is not the point. Renown is not why we go into the field. Renown is not why we wage this war against Mordor. It doesn't matter. Valor is its own reward. Virtue is its own reward. And you are just as capable of demonstrating that virtue here as you would be on the field. And she turns that around. All your words are but to say, you are a woman, and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honor, you will have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. But I am of the house of Aeorl, and not a serving woman. I can ride and wield blade, and I do not fear either pain or death. And when we're talking about the gender politics of this passage in particular, we've got to look at Eowyn. We've got to talk about Eowyn's context here, right? Am I not of the house of Aeorl, a shield maiden, and not a dry nurse? I am of the house of Aeorl, and not a serving woman. She doesn't actually have a problem with women staying home while men go off to war. She has a problem specifically with Eowyn staying home while the men go off to war. She desires glory. This is not, this is not at its most basic level, a gendered conflict, I would argue. I think that, that Eowyn sees it as a gendered conflict, right? She is clearly feeling limited because she is a woman and she is thus feeling oppressed. That is that is her circumstance. She is feeling as though the patriarchy has kind of looked at her application for renown and glory and valor and crossed through it and said, no, thank you. Actually, if you could just stay home and tidy up, that would be awesome. That is Eowyn's perspective on this, but that is not the perspective that Aragorn gives us. And I don't think that it's the perspective that the narrative voice gives us either. So Eowyn desires renown. She desires the glory of battle. This is her rhetoric blood pounding in her veins. She wants the fight. She wants to serve her people, not through a quiet and unmarked act of service, but through the glory of conflict, through the, the glory of bloodshed here and the slaying of one's enemies as her eyes shine right back in the previous slide when Aragorn is telling her the stories about Helm's Deep and about Isengard and her eyes are shining because of the slaying of the numerous uh, the, the numerous foes that the, the men of the Rohirrim uh, overcame in those battles. That's why she's excited. She wants the fight. But there is, of course, something else happening here. Because 
Eowyn's presence, and, and we're going to skip ahead here a little bit, right? And, and it doesn't really matter because it's not as though this is a spoiler to literally anyone, I'm sure, who has ever heard of The Lord of the Rings, let alone seen the movies, let alone read the book. But Eowyn's presence in the conflict later in the book is going to be extremely important. It is going to be eucatastrophic. It is going to be an essential part of the victory of the forces of light. So what is it that is motivating Eowyn here? Well, this desire for glory, yes, but there may be a quieter voice motivating her. There may be some echo of distant music within Eowyn right now, right? This may be her version of, if I understand right, all that I have heard. This may be her version of of, of feeling that divine wind from the West, that, that feeling that that tug of action, of inevitable, necessary action at this point. We'll complete our thoughts on Eowyn as we move forward. Gosh, the uh, the whole thing is, is falling apart here. Um, let me see here. Not about gender, it's about class, says Joseph. Um, well, <laughs> it is about class in a sense, right? It is not about the division or the distinction between Aragorn's class and Eowyn's class. It is about the role, it is about service, and it is about what it is to be a king or a queen or to hold that power by proxy in the form of a steward, which is pretty much where Eowyn is right now. It is about that authority and that that necessity of kingly service. Aragorn is riding to battle, but he's not doing so urgently and gleefully. He does not look for the glory, right? We're also reminded of Faramir. Faramir is going to be very relevant to Eowyn later in this story, and it's no coincidence that we're getting this alternate perspective. What does Eowyn want? Well, she wants the glory. She actually does love the arrow for its swiftness and the the sword for its sharpness, right? She loves the glory of the fight. Faramir does not. Eowyn is wrong here. I mean, she's not wrong to chafe against her constraints, and she's not wrong to to want what it is that she wants, and she's certainly not wrong to want to fight for the preservation of her way of life. These are all noble and virtuous things. But what she is misunderstanding here is the ultimate purpose of that service. Why do we serve? To preserve those things which are softer and sweeter, as Faramir understands so well when he talks to, to Frodo and Sam at Henneth and Moon in, um, in Ithilien. Well, well, I'm very tempted to, to keep talking about Eowyn, but we absolutely must uh, we absolutely must push on. Yes, yes. All right, let's uh, let's keep going here. Good. Oh, Seastar says one interpretation is that Eowyn wants to be Ar- uh, wants to be with Aragorn. Uh, oh, okay. Sorry. One interpretation says Seastar is that Eowyn wants to be Aragorn more than she wants to be with him. It doesn't relate to her desire to experience battle, but more broadly, I can relate to the bitter frustration of being blocked and held back from becoming what I want to be and feel I was meant to be. <sighs> This is part of what I was talking about earlier, right? This desire to simplify and reduce many of the complexities presented to us by Professor Tolkien in the name of a simple critical wash, if you like. This is why it is so important to preserve that space for discourse and for personal response and to acknowledge the contradictory impulses of characters within the frame of the fiction. Eowyn wants the glory and she wants the glory for virtuous reasons. She does, I think, in some sense, Star want to be Aragorn. I think you're right. Like that, that sense of heroism clearly speaks to her. And we can applaud the valor of that and we can applaud the virtue of that without necessarily saying that she is right. 
as I say, Faramir is the kind of point I absolutely must move on. I'm afraid I didn't mention this right at the beginning of today's session, but I do have a very, very firm heart out, and we need to make some progress through here. So, hey, let's get into the pods of the day. Luckily, we're going to have the opportunity to circle back to Eowyn at the end of today's reading. Into then, the paths of the dead. Does he feel no fear, muttered the dwarf. In any other cave, Gimli Glowin' Sun would have been the first to run to the gleam of gold, but not here. Let it lie. Nonetheless, he drew near and saw Aragorn kneeling while Eladon held aloft both torches. Before him were the bones of a mighty man. He had been clad in mail and still his harness lay there whole, for the cavern's air was as dry as dust and his hauberk was gilded. His belt was of gold and garnets, and rich with gold was the helm upon his bony head, face downward on the floor. He had fallen near the far wall of the cave, as now could be seen, and before him stood a stony door closed fast. His finger bones were still clawing at the cracks, and notched and broken sword lay by him, as if he had hewn at the rock in his last despair. Aragorn did not touch him, and after gazing silently for a while he rose and sighed. Hither shall the flowers of Sindamini come never unto the world's end, he murmured. Nine mounds and seven there, now, there are now green with grass, and through all the long years he has lain at the door that he could not unlock. Whither does it lead? Why would he pass? None shall ever know. For that is not my errand, he cried, turning back and speaking to the whispering darkness behind. Keep your hordes and your secrets hidden in the accursed ears. Speed only we ask. Let us pass, then come. I summon you to the stone of Erech. Aragorn, again, giving a brilliant speech to unseen things, right? As we discussed last time, as he's giving the inspirational to the stone of Eric speech to Legolas and Gimli, as they're like, okay, we already said we were coming with you. It's going to be fine. This is Baldor. Theoden is going to give us a gloss of the story just a little later. This body here is Baldor, also known as Baldor the Hapless. He was the oldest son of Brego, the second lord of the Mark, and brother of Aldor, the third lord of the Mark. So he is basically the uh, the, the grandson of uh, of Eorl, who, who led the uh, led the forces of the Ruhirim down from the north to aid Gondor in its most dire hour. He then comes into the paths of the dead, which have, of course, already been standing for two and a half thousand years at this point, right? The, the dead cursed by uh, cursed by Isildur have already been here for two and a half thousand years by the time the, the Rohirrim even come into Rohan in the first place. So he comes into the paths of the dead, uh, into the dark door under Dwemerberg. It's... It's such an evocative detail, is the thing, and I want to kind of plunge into it deeply. I want to talk a lot about this. This is... So powerful as he's talking, Tolkien actually uh, writes in an unfinished piece about Baldur's fate, saying that he had made it as far as the door which led to an old temple built by men who worshipped Sauron, right? This, these are the, uh, this is the, the, the secrets hidden in the accursed years. This is the door, is the door to the temple to Sauron that was set up here in the, uh, in the paths of the dead many, many years before. And Baldur simply falls it's a really beautiful story. Maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk about it when we get to Theoden, actually. Um, we'll see if we can uh, see if we can do that last thing there. Um, Cyrano de Bergerac saying, yes, Baldur, if you agree to pay royalties to Bioware, says Dry Heaving Lomas. Yes, I can't read Baldur without thinking of Baldur's Gate either. Games which I completely adore. The two Bioware, uh, the two Bioware Baldur's Gate games uh, are fantastic. I, I need to go back and play some of those old Infinity Engine games. I recently bought the first Baldur's Gate on my phone, which it turns out is a mistake because the, the user interface is just not equipped to to allow me to engage with that on a device the size of my phone. But I will definitely go back and play Baldur's Gate. I have played those games to death. And corporeal referencing, of course, Baldur was the Norse god of light and being basically wonderful. Yes, Baldur is, ah, uh, gosh, probably the most uncomplicatedly heroic figure in all of Norse mythology. Would that be a fair thing to say? Baldur is, yes, a god of being just really awesome in Norse mythology. Yeah, good. Um, 
Let me see here. Uh, Sereno de Bergerac saying, sorry to drag Eowyn back, uh, but last statement. Eowyn's desire for glory doesn't exist in a vacuum, though. The virtue of being a valiant warrior is inherent in the culture of Rohan. So to be denied what is seen as virtuous would be frustrating no matter who you are. Yes, yes. I think the argument there is that Aragorn is pointing out that the the... The, the virtues represented here by Rohiric culture or, or the virtues valued by Rohiric culture are somewhat misaligned, that they have got the wrong end of Faramir's speech, right? They are more Boromir than Faramir. They want, they want the renown and not the service, but the service is what really matters. That, I think, is Aragorn's point. But certainly, yes, you're absolutely right. Eowyn is is steeped in her culture. There's a very strong argument that in her desire to go and fight, Eowyn is more Rohiric than pretty much any other character that we get. I mean, Theoden kind of occupies a special spot because he is Rohan, right? As king, he is fundamentally representative of the virtues of this nation, of the identity of this nation, of the beating heart of this nation. But in terms of the Rohirrim that we meet, I think you can argue that Eowyn is even more Rohiric in that sense than Eomer is. She's... She's on point. She understands this, this duty and this service, but she misunderstands her specific duty and service. I think that is the argument, right? I think that, that is how that argument is, is framed there. Good. All right. Um, good. Good. Uh, yes. All right. Let's keep pushing on here. Um, as we cross the Herodale... And then, looking anxiously at the time here. This is very bad. Let's cross the Haradale to Eric and let's get to the king of the dead. The dead are following, said Legolas. I see shapes of men and of horses and pale banners like shreds of cloud and spears like winter thickets on a misty night. The dead are following. Yes, the dead right behind. They have been summoned, said Eladon. The company came at last out of the ravine, as suddenly as if they had issued from a crack in a wall, and there lay the uplands of a great vale before them and the stream beside them that went down into a cold voice over many falls. "'Where in Middle-earth are we?' said Gimli, and Eladon answered. "'We have descended from the uprising of the Morthond, "'the long, chill river that flows at last to the sea "'that washes in the walls of Dol Amroth. You will, not na- "'You will not need to ask hereafter how it came by its name. "'Blackroot, men call it.' "'The Morthond Vale made a great bay "'that beat up against the sheer southern faces of the mountains. "'Its steep slope was grass-grown, but all was grey in that hour, "'for the sun had gone, and far below lights twinkled in the homes of man. "'The Vale was rich, and many folk dwelt there.' Then, without turning, Aragorn cried aloud so that all could hear, "'Friends, forget your weariness! Ride now, ride! We must come to the stone of Erech ere this day passes, and long still is the way!' So without looking back, they rode the mountain fields until they came to a bridge over the growing torrent and found a road that went down into the land. Lights went out in house and hamlet as they came, and doors were shut, and folk that were afield cried in terror and ran wild like hunted deer. Ever there rose the same cry in the gathering night, "'The King of the Dead! The King of the Dead has come upon us!' Bells were ringing far below, and all men fled before the face of Aragorn, but the grey company in their haste rode like hunters, until their horses were stumbling with weariness, and thus, just ere midnight, and in a darkness as black as the caverns in the mountains, they came at last to the hill of Erech. So Aragorn calls out in the paths of the dead. He summons the dead to follow him to the stone of Erech because that is where their oath was taken and that is where the the fulfillment of their oath must be compelled. He can't appeal to them within the paths of the dead because that is not his place of power. That is not his place of authority. So he faces them down and summons them forth and then they ride forth through the Morthen Vale here sowing panic in their way, right? As every house is shuttered and all of the lights go out and people cry out, the king of the dead, the king of the dead is upon us. And hey, Peter Jackson, the king of the dead is Aragorn. That's the figure that we're referring to here. I've talked a lot about 
the problems with the return of the king as an adaptation the, the movie adaptation of the return of the king the problems that it has in in representing the tone of the books in representing the the valor of many of our characters right it is to my eternal distaste that we compress Eowyn's final awesome speech to the Witch King of Angmar to that very simple, I am no man, right? The speech that we get in the book is just so much better, right? The Battle of Pelennor Fields is just so much better in the book. There's so much to appreciate. The Paths of the Dead and, and the subsequent eucatastrophic arrival of Aragorn is, is yeah, it's, it's a phrase that I've been using more and more often as we've been moving through our discussions here. I think The Return of the King is the least effective of the movies, I'll put it that way. And I think that that the representation of the Oathbreakers, the representation of the parts of the dead is another swing and a miss. You know, to, to, to be just covered in skulls, somewhat less powerful than this, I have to say. So we see Aragorn again. Friends, forget your weariness. Ride now, ride. We must come to the Stone of Erechir. This day passes and long still is the way. We get that somewhat archaic and, and grandiose syntax and we ride forth through the Morthen Vale here. Without looking back, they rode the mountain fields until they came to a bridge over the growing torrent and found a road that went down into the land. We just keep on pushing forward, pushing forward. We're covering so much ground in this chapter and Aragorn and the Great Company are going to continue to cover a great deal of ground. Let's get to... The last passage here in chapter two, so that we can cover what is ostensibly our reading for this week in the last half hour of our discussion. To that stone, the company came and halted in the dead of night. Then Elwahir gave to Aragorn a silver horn and he blew upon it. And it seemed to those that stood near that they heard a sound of answering horns as if, as if it was an echo in deep caves far away. No other sound they heard, and yet they were aware of a great host gathered all about the hill on which they stood, and a chill wind like the breath of ghosts came down from the mountains. But Aragorn dismounted, and standing by the stone, he cried in a great voice, Oathbreakers, why have ye come? And a voice was heard out of the night that answered him, as if from far away, To fulfill our oath and have peace. Then Aragorn said, The hour has come at last. Now I go to Pilargir upon Anduin, and you shall come after me. And when all this land is clean of the servants of Sauron, I will hold the oath fulfilled, and ye shall have peace and depart forever, for I am a lesser, Isildur's heir of Gondor. And with that he bade Habarad unfurl the great standard which he had brought, and behold, it was black, and if there was any device upon it, it was hidden in the darkness. Then there was silence, and not a whisper nor a sigh was heard again all the long night. The company camped beside the stone, and they slept little because of the dread of the shadows that hedged them around. But when the dawn came, cold and pale, Aragorn rose at once, and he led the company forth upon the journey of greatest haste and weariness that any among them had known, save he alone and only his will held them to go on. No other mortal man could have endured it, none but the Dúnedain of the north, and with them Gimli the dwarf and Legolas of the elves. They passed Tarling's neck and came to Lamadon, and, sh and the shadow host pa uh, pressed behind, and fear went on before them until they came to Kalembal upon Kirill, and the sun went down like blood behind Pinneth Galen away in the west behind them. The township and the fords of Kirill they found deserted, for many men had gone away to war, and all that were left fled to the hills at the rumor of the coming of the king of the dead. But the next day there came no dawn, and the grey company passed on into the darkness of the storm of Mordor, and were lost to mortal sight. But the dead followed them. But the dead followed them is such a fantastic cap to this, you know, what is a fairly conventional, you know, Tolkien traveling scene. We just, we're covering a lot of ground. We're making with great haste. No, none could have endured it. None but the Dunedain of the North and with them Gimli the Dwarf and Legolas of the Elves. Look how formal our language is here. We're almost titling Gimli here, right? Except we're not titling him in his personhood. We are titling him in his archetypal role. He is now not Gimli son of Glowin. He is Gimli the Dwarf and Legolas of the Elves and the Dunedain of the North. North. The other journey, of course, that has been this 
taxing and wearisome that has been this arduous, that has been this swift. Um, he led the company forth upon the journey of greatest haste and weariness that any among them had known save he alone. Well, he and Gimli and Legolas, right? Of the Grey Company, only Aragorn is possessed of this knowledge because my read of this, at least, is that he's referring to the uh, to the race across Rohan in pursuit of Merry and Pippin at the beginning of The Two Towers. That seems to me to be the only compatible point of reference here. So we have the prophecy, right? The prophecy has unfurled. We get the horn. We get the, the sounding of the great horn, the echoes of the horn. The dead have come now to the stone of Eric. And Aragorn is in full kingly mode once more. Oathbreakers, why have ye come? Not, hey, what are you doing here, Oathbreakers? He's, he's seeking the formal confirmation here. Why have ye come? To fulfill our oath and have peace. This is why they are here. There's no act of persuasion here, right? Aragorn is not saying, okay, let me barter with you. Let me negotiate with you. Let me convince you that you should do the right thing and that you should fulfill your oath. No, the Oathbreakers, the dead here, already understand their role, to fulfill our oath and have peace. Then Aragorn said, the hour has come at last, now I go to Pilargir upon Anduin, and ye shall come after me, and when all this land is clean of the servants of Sauron, I will hold the oath fulfilled, and ye shall have peace and depart forever, for I am a lesser, Isildur's heir of Gondor. Claiming his name, claiming his heritage, claiming his kingly title there, of course, a lesser will be the title that Aragorn wields when he is ultimately king, when he finally gets around to returning. And he is making good on Isildur's promise here, not just demanding by right the obedience of the dead here that have pursued him from the paths of the dead to the stone of Eric, not just asserting his authority, but also granting the reward, also saying, yes, fulfill your oath. And then when your oath is fulfilled, your oath, by the way, to rise up and fight against Sauron at the side of the king, remember that oath that you took and then didn't fulfill? Now you get to fulfill it. And when it is done, you'll be free. There'll be no more penance, no more punishment. You will be free to die. You will find the peace that you have sought for so long in your subterranean caverns back there beneath the deepest mountains. That takes... Oh, no, actually, there is... <laughs> I can't skip over this because this is one of my favorite things in all of The Return of the King. This is... This is perilously close to a joke. And Professor Tolkien does not tell many jokes in the course of The Lord of the Rings, right? But there is a heavy irony here as we get the reveal of the standard. And with that, he bade Habarad unfurl the great standard which he had brought, right? Remember, this is the standard that was that was woven for Aragorn by Arwen. This is the standard that, that Habarad and the, the Dunedain have carried with them from the north, along with the words of Arwen and the words of, of Elrond that urged Aragorn to take to the paths of the dead in the first place. This standard has been brought. Now, in, in, you know, if, if we do not succeed, then all hope is lost. And therefore, I sent you the standard that I have made for you. This, these are Arwen's words that are given to us by Halbarad in the last chapter. So now we come down, we unfurl the banner. With that, he bade Halbarad unfurl the great standard which he had brought. And behold, exclamation point, it was black. And if there was any device upon it, it was hidden in the darkness. I mean, technically it is unfurled. It isn't metaphorically unfurled though, right? Behold! You can't see it. We know nothing about this banner. We know just as much about this banner as we did before it was unfurled. We're going to get the banner reveal. It is coming. But that use of behold, yes, it's absolutely in that, that Tolkienian register, right? In that, that most mythic of registers. That is, so Gandalf and Pippin rode forth, you know, and, and so it was. And I say to thee, and all of the, like, the grandest pieces of archaic language that we get, this stands among them, this arguably exceeds them. And behold, it was black. And if there was any device upon it, it was hidden in the darkness. Then there was silence. 
I kind of take that to be another beat to camera. I'm not going to lie. I take that to be, you know, just a, just a, a take. Good job, Halbrand. It's going to look real impressive in the morning. Going to look, going to look really, uh, should have maybe waited for the dawn before we unfurled the banner, Halbrand. Good job. Yeah. Um, let me see here as I catch up. Yes. Uh, Shane saying the first time I read this, uh, the first time I read this, the banner reveal later was unexpected and is still one of my favorite parts of the book. It is fantastic. It is, it is very arguably, I think, the fulcrum around which that entire sequence turns, and that sequence is in its entirety just brilliant to read. We'll get to that in just a couple of chapters' time. Yes, good, good. Um, oh, we're talking about the uh, oh, Lynn saying that she hated the movie version of Helm's Deep, and Sea Star saying too. I dislike the Helm's Deep scene because battle scenes always bore me, but it wasn't inflated enough to ruin the film for me. Yes, yes. Um, the Helm's Deep sequence, I do not love, I have to say, in uh, in the Lord of the Rings movies. I'm also, yeah, no, the battle sequences in general don't really do it for me, I have to say. I actually really love the battle sequence that we get right at the beginning of Fellowship, right? When we get the the long extended, in the extended cut, we get the long flashback to uh, the Battle of the Last Alliance at Daggerland there. We get this, the, the, the severing of Sauron's fingers and the taking of the ring and all of that stuff. That battle sequence feels... I don't know, more mythic to me. It's it's something to do with the way that it is shot. It's something to do with the way that it is, the way that it is colored, right? The whole texture of that sequence feels much more mythic in a way that absolutely hooks me and engages me. But yeah, both Helm's Deep and Pelennor Fields, I think mm, somewhat less effective. There are individual shots and individual moments that I think are terrific, right? There's obviously we get a couple of shots of of, uh, of Gandalf in particular, which are just staggering, just just absolutely breathtaking. But yeah, it's it's inconsistent at least. All right. Let us move on into chapter three here with the muster of Rohan and another bit of narrative intrusion. This is the very beginning of chapter three of book five of The Lord of the Rings. Now all roads were running together to the east to meet the coming of war and the onset of the shadow. And even as Pippin stood at the great gate of the city and saw the prince of Dol Amroth ride in with his banners, the king of Rohan came down out of the hills. Day was waning. In the last rays of the sun, the riders cast long pointed shadows that went on before them. Darkness had already crept beneath the murmuring fir woods that clothed the steep mountainsides. The king rode now slowly at the end of the day. Presently, the path turned around a huge bare shoulder of rock and plunged into the gloom of soft sighing trees. Down, down they went in a long winding file. When at last they came to the bottom of the gorge, they found that evening had fallen in the deep places. The sun was gone. Twilight lay upon the waterfalls. All day far below them was the leaping stream had run... Excuse me... All day, far below them, a leaping stream had run down from the high pass behind, cleaving its narrow way between pine-clad walls, and now through a stony gate it flowed out and passed into a wider vale. The riders followed it, and suddenly Harrowdale lay before them, loud with the noise of waters in the evening. There the white snowburn, joined by the lesser stream, went rushing, fuming onto the stones, down to Edoras and the green hills and the plains. Away to the right at the head of the great dale, the mighty Starkhorn loomed up above its vast buttresses swathed in cloud. But its jagged peak, clothed in everlasting snow, gleamed far above the world, blue shadowed upon the east, red stained by the sunset in the west. That, again, brilliantly painter, uh, brilliant painterly descriptions. Also brilliantly painterly descriptions, I suppose, from Professor Tolkien here. I love the description of the landscape that we get. That final image, though, is one of my absolute favorites. Gleamed far above the world, blue shadowed upon the, uh, upon the east, red stained by the sunset in the west. That opposition of, of blue and red, that opposition of west and east, the inversion of what we might expect in our associations with those colors. Blue shadowed upon the east, red stained by the sunset in the west. 
gorgeous, absolutely lovely imagery. And what is most important about this reading, the reason, I mean, besides the landscape description, which I do adore, we get this fantastic introduction here. Now all roads were running together to the east to meet the coming of war and the onset of the shadow. But even as Pippin stood at the great gate of the city and saw the Prince of Dolamroth ride in with his banners. Hey, remember at the end of chapter one? Remember when Pippin is standing there looking down at the arrival of the forces from the, the Gondorian outlands to the south? Few in number. And we see the arrival of the Prince of Dolamroth there. Remember that beat? The narrator is now drawing us back to that. Even as Pippin stood at the great gate of the city and saw the Prince of the Lamar ride in with his banners, the King of Rohan came down out of the hills. Why are these two things connected? Why are we doing something that we rarely do within the frame? It's something which we have purposefully sought to subvert over the course of the beginning of, of the return of the king. Why are we now aligning these things? Because all roads were running together to the east to meet the coming of war and the onset of the shadow. This is it, you guys. Everything that is everything that needs to be in motion is now in motion. We are now moving toward the final climax, and all of these roads are leading us to the same place, the coming of war and the onset of shadow. We are moving into our endgame now in a way that is incredibly propulsive and, and lovely. I, I absolutely love... Yeah, Jackie's saying it's such a great transition, and it helps the reader with the timeline. It really does, right? This is, this is where we are. It's not actually necessary to know how far back we jumped when we started Chapter 2, when we jumped back, I don't know, five days or however long it was to, to pick up with Aragorn. It's not even completely necessary to know that we jumped back to begin Chapter 1 with uh, the arrival at Minas Tirith of, of Pippin and Gandalf, that we're breaking the temporal frame from the end of the Two Towers here to jump back to events further west. You don't need to know that stuff. But now it is necessary that we understand that we are moving now toward our final climax. I, I love how it's uh, how that's done. Yeah, yeah, good. So that is our introduction. And then we move on to Mary's experience of the journey. He was very tired, for though they had ridden slowly, they had ridden with very little rest. Hour after hour for nearly three weary days, he had jogged up and down, over passes and through long dales and across many streams. Sometimes, where the way was broader, he had ridden at the king's side, not noticing that many of the riders smiled to see the two together, the hobbit on his little shaggy grey pony, and the lord of Rohan on his great white horse. Then he had talked to Theoden, telling him about his home and the doings of the Shirefolk, or listening in turn to tales of the mark and its mighty man of old. But most of the time, especially on this last day, Merry had ridden by himself just behind the king, saying nothing, and trying to understand the slow, sonorous speech of Rohan that he heard the men behind him using. It was a language in which there seemed to be many words that he knew, though spoken more richly and strongly than in the Shire, yet he could not piece the words together. At times, some writer would lift up his clear voice and stirring song, and Mary felt his heart leap, though he did not know what it was about. All the same, he had been lonely, and never more so now than, than now at the day's end. He wondered where in all this strange world Pippin had got to, and what would become of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. Then suddenly, like a cold touch on his heart, he thought of Frodo and Sam. I am forgetting them, he said to himself reproachfully, and yet they are more important than all the rest of us, and I came to help them, but now they must be hundreds of miles away if they are still alive. He shivered. And that, friends, is the unexpected end of this week's There and Back Again session. Unfortunately, my internet connection died. You may have been able to hear sounds of construction outside the studio over the course of the last 20 minutes or so of the recording. I'm afraid to say that my internet connection died suddenly and without any kind of grace whatsoever. So we will call it quits there. We got... Well, barely anywhere in my desire to get through all of my slides this week, but that's just fine. I'm going to look into the possibility of setting up a makeup session, possibly this coming Sunday evening. If not, then we'll just pick up next week. My huge apologies for the uh, inconvenience and for the somewhat shorter than expected podcast episode. I'll be back with you all very soon. Until then, fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!